You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. First of all, my background and training is in industrial and organizational psychology, which is psychology applied to work settings. And I first became interested in this topic, in this area of research, when I was in college. And I had prior to that worked a lot of part-time jobs to earn extra money and to put myself through school. So I just really the notion of work resonated with me. And one of my professors at the time mentioned that we really spend about half of our waking lives at work as adults who are working full-time in the labor force. And I hadn't really thought about work in that way before, but that really led to what got me very interested in and excited about the field of industrial organizational psychology and also occupational health psychology, where we focus a lot on worker health and well-being. And all of that to say that if we're going to be spending so much time working, I just feel so strongly that we should hopefully find jobs that we enjoy where we're going to be safe, where we're not going to get sick or, or come home from work at the end of the day or, or leave work, like those of us who, who didn't really go to work or we're sitting at home during this pandemic, um, but where we can be safe and healthy and hopefully have a high quality of work life. And then uh, more on the topic of aging. So truth be told, I, I didn't go to graduate school thinking I was going to be studying older workers or aging workforce issues. I, I really just ended up um, getting involved in that kind of work based on the first job I had after graduate school. But when I think about the aging workforce, I think about my dad. And he had a number of jobs throughout his career. And he and my mom each always worked so very hard and, and had a very strong work ethic. But one thing they weren't very good at was saving their money. And so as a result, my dad worked until he fell ill to cancer and he was no longer able to work. And so when I began working on a project after graduate school called the Health and Retirement Study, and I was fortunate to have an opportunity to work with a really large interdisciplinary team of researchers, I learned about issues facing older adults beyond just psychology and understanding and appreciating economic factors and the, the importance of saving for retirement. In fact, to this day, I think I need to thank those econ colleagues because I probably socked a little bit more money away in my own uh, 403B account um, because they encouraged me about the importance of retirement. But unfortunately, what happened to my dad and what happens to so many people, and this is really a critical issue in our country right now, is that people aren't financially prepared for retirement. The whole process by which we are expected to save and plan financially has shifted over time. Now the onus is really on the individual worker to plan and prepare and save for retirement rather than having an employer that will provide all of that for you. And between that and in terms of the increasing costs of health care and just a lot of what's happening in society, we find that a lot of people are not able to retire when they would like to, but rather they, like my dad, have to keep working until they're no longer able to work simply because they aren't able to afford retirement. So I hope that just going forward that all of the research that's being done 
on older adults and aging and retirement and health can really help us have a better picture and understanding of what we can do so that we can help people so that when they want to retire, they're able to do so and to have a good quality of life. That amazing introduction to today's episode is courtesy of Dr. Gwen Fisher, an associate professor of industrial organizational psychology at CSU. Fisher is a researcher in the Occupational Health Psychology Lab, a team that studies issues of worker health and well-being and characteristics of the work environment that impact individuals and organizations. On today's episode, it's all about the future of work, and specifically trends, gaps, and hot topics surrounding the older adult workforce. I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. So Gwen, thank you so much for coming on our show and talking to us. I'm really excited to talk to you and I've been looking forward to this conversation. Thank you so much, Hannah. It's really wonderful to be here and I appreciate the opportunity. And so, you know, we brought you on the show to talk about trends, gaps in the older adult workforce and and some of the things that you find in your research. And I know when you and I were talking previously, you said there's like a before times and an after times with the pandemic. You know, we knew what the trends were before and now the pandemic is putting a shift on it. So I wonder if we could maybe start back way before 2020 <laughs> and go to that <laughs> that part of your research and then we can talk a little bit later about how the pandemic has shifted things. But what were some of the the trends that you were seeing for middle and older adults when when it comes to working? It's a great question, Hannah. Thank you. What we were seeing before is that a number of people were really remaining in the workforce and working until later ages. Of course, there are individual differences. I'm not saying that every person out there was was staying and working until a later age. But generally speaking, on the whole, we were seeing trends toward people remaining in the workforce until later ages. and, um, And we're now seeing that that has shifted. Yes. And what can you what can you tell us about, you know, encore careers, for example? That's something that that I think my generation thinks a lot more about is, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be doing the same thing 30 years from now that I'm doing at this moment. It seems like it's becoming more popular. Yes, absolutely. So there are a lot of different terms in the popular press as well as in the research literature for talking about encore careers. And so this phenomenon is the notion that many people, and as you point out, many more people, especially among younger generations, may not be choosing one occupation or one career and doing that kind of work the whole time, but rather shifting not only jobs, but careers at various points throughout their lifetime. And in some cases, that might require additional training going back to school, or it might, um, in some cases, it's shifting toward perhaps less demanding work and choosing a job that is really related to people's hobbies or passions. And so there there are lots of ways that people are doing it. Uh, There's also bridge employment. So that's just another term in the literature. And again, the notion that somebody might leave their main job 
and re- technically retire from that job or, or leave that job and then go ahead and find other work so that they don't leave the labor force altogether, but they find other ways to remain engaged in work. And usually what we're finding is that people are seeking out jobs that are more meaningful to them and that have a higher quality of work life, whether it's better work hours or better people to work with. Maybe they don't have to commute as far. Uh, Maybe they can work from home. We know from the research that a lot of people really enjoy flexibility. And we're seeing that certainly right now. It's um, very much happening right now with with a lot of people leaving, um, just, just leaving work altogether and seeking better quality work. What do you think it says about where our society is headed that so many people are having to work so much later into their lives than maybe they used to? It's a great question. So I think it's a few things. One, um, at least in the U.S., we're, I would say, a generally capitalistic society. Um, We enjoy our material goods. We like to spend money. And um, again, there are plenty of individual differences. So it's not my intention to insult anybody out there who's a really good saver. But uh, a lot of what happens is consumption. And too often, we are living to our means or extending beyond those means and not having sufficient resources to be able to save. But it's not just individual people. I don't mean to blame people for this. It's also just where we are with wages. And as I'm sure many know, there's a huge disparity between the wealthy and the poor or middle class workers in our society, such that um, that in some cases people aren't able to save because they they don't earn enough money to be able to have money left over after they take care of of all of their responsibilities. I mean, one example of that is in in here in Fort Collins, just the cost of housing is so incredibly high and it can be really difficult for people to save money because they have to pay their rent or their mortgage. Um, And uh, and the cost of, of education and college is just so much higher than it ever was. In fact, many people um, have a a tough start in life if they're still paying for the education. And then if they have a job where, where the wages just, don't keep up with what their needs are. So it's, a, a, I think, a combination of not saving enough, but also a complex factor regarding wages and all that. And, and I want to be clear, I, I'm not an economist, so I don't want to go outside the bounds of my knowledge or expertise here, but I, I think it's complicated. There are some people, as you pointed out, that have to keep working because they can't afford to retire uh, or that would like a different job, but they're kind of stuck. And the term for that is called job lock. Uh, And then there are other people who are fortunate that they have more flexibility in what they do, perhaps because they have different economic needs, or they prioritize their well-being and the meaningfulness of the work that they do. And that's more important to them than how big their paycheck is. Right. Yes. Thank you for that description. I think that was a really good explanation of where we are right now. And I wonder if now is the point to bring up this pandemic we're in currently, because I'm curious what you think future trends are for work. What are some hot topics in the future of work? But it's almost like we can't talk about the future unless we talk about this elephant in the room of how has COVID changed changed these trends? 
Absolutely. So with COVID, um, first, we experienced a a large economic decline. Many people lost their jobs uh, due to downsizing or the nature of the work or the industry they were in just wasn't able to be sustained during the pandemic when we had social distancing and mandatory lockdowns and so forth. Um, Examples of, of where uh, some workers particularly suffered were in the hospitality and the restaurant industry when a lot of restaurants just were not um, able to sustain what was happening. And fortunately, our economy is doing better than it was uh, right about two years ago, right, as COVID was really um, sinking into what was happening. But for older workers, we know that there's unfortunately age discrimination. There's a large literature that points to the challenges associated with employment and re-employment, particularly among older workers. Um, Some colleagues of mine at the University of Michigan, Rick Price and Amiram Vinegar, have done a lot of work looking at at issues related to unemployment. And so older workers have a a harder time finding jobs and getting hired. Uh, So two things happened. Some of them decided, and especially there's research showing that it's wealthier people that were able to remain out of the workforce and treated perhaps that opportunity of, of not being in the workforce or getting laid off, losing their job as, as a chance to retire. And other people either found other work to do or um, needed to make some shifts in order to make things happen because, again, they weren't able to necessarily afford being out of work. So, so it's, we're seeing a, a divergent pattern in that regard. What do you think the future holds in terms of, you know, your area of specialty with occupational health and well-being when it comes to older workers? What do you think the future has in store? That's um, very timely. It's a timely question uh, because some colleagues and I are are working on some research related to future of work issues and trying to really lay out what is happening in the work environment that we need to pay attention to. So one is understanding the characteristics of jobs, what's happening in those jobs so that we can ideally come up with a good fit between an individual worker and the work environment or the demands of the job and what they're expected to do. So it's it's really just understanding those jobs and also understanding too, how are those jobs changing over time? So it's not a surprise perhaps to anybody that technology rapidly changes and technology is having a huge impact on the nature of work. And in order for many people to remain as viable employees, they need to be able to use and adapt to that technology. I think it's um, there's a um, we want to be careful that we don't stereotype older workers as not being able to learn or adapt to that technology. That would be an overgeneralization, and and there's um, certainly research indicating uh, that many older workers are able to adapt, although there are still some negative stereotypes. But still recognizing technology and and what that means for the nature of work. I'm. I'm thinking about, you know, back when I was in grad school, (laughs) I was really deep into just writing a thesis that had to, had, it had to loop in just qualities about capitalism. And one of the things that's coming to mind is 
that in a capitalistic society, you're only as productive for as long as you can work. Like that's Mm -hmm. what's you're like, that's seen as your biggest contribution to the society is that you're working and you're helping the economy. So how do you interpret that? Like, what's your first thought with just me making that statement? Sure. So it immediately brings to mind this jargony term from our research literature called workability, which isn't somebody's job performance, but it's the job-related functional capacity that workers have to be able to do the work that they are expected to do or required to do on their job. And what we know from research just over the last 10 to 20 years is that the longer workers are able to maintain their abilities so that they can meet those job demands, then it will allow them to remain in the workforce. And when they reach a point when their workability no longer fits with their job, we have two choices. We can change the job. Or we can have that person leave that job and maybe find a different job that's a better fit. Um, For a lot of reasons, uh, neither of those is an easy solution um, because changing jobs can be really complicated. Um, It may or may not work in the organization. It depends on, on what the role is and what's happening. But as I mentioned, there's a big concern about unemployment and reemployment among older workers. And so having somebody encouraging somebody to just quit and go find something else doesn't necessarily solve the problem either. So um, first of all, I'd love to just do more research on this topic because um, I, I have this inherent desire to understand what's better when people are not able to meet those demands. Um, you know, in terms of people's well-being, what feels better? Is it changing the job? Uh, and maybe reducing demands, or is it moving to an altogether new job? Um, And then secondly, recognizing there's a whole research literature about work design and how we ought to structure work that could be good for people. I would say one of the foremost experts on the topic of work design is my friend and colleague Sharon Parker at Curtin University in Australia. She actually works at uh, the Future of Work Institute, FAWI, where they're doing a lot of work to understand the workplace and what's changing. And what we know from management and organizational psychology literature is that when workers are involved in jobs where they have autonomy or say over what they're doing and they get feedback and the work's meaningful, they're going to be more motivated in order to accomplish that work. And also with that autonomy, there may be ways to change the work or amend it, um, craft it, if you will, so that it can maximize what people's strengths are and then try to minimize the things that maybe people are, are struggling to continue to do well. You know, we've been having so many just, you know, societal conversations about the future of work given the pandemic. I'm listen- I've listened to so many commentaries on it. And every time I hear one, just like right now talking to you too, it's almost like, oh, well, this is too good to be true. <laughs> yes. It's like we know what we should be doing to support worker health and well-being, but is it ever actually going to come into practice? What, what are your thoughts? That's a, a big challenge. Um, and and <laughs> it's as if you were reading my mind because as I was describing the, the solution to this issue of when you have a mismatch between workers' abilities and their job, um, fixing that problem is much easier said than done. 
And so first of all, I think having some federal regulations or guidance could be helpful. Um, we, we at least need some policies on a larger scale. And, and in recognizing, you know, first just doing away with age discrimination and recognizing that older workers really offer a lot to the organization and they often have institutional knowledge and other skills and expertise that could be useful. Mentoring and getting very involved in, a, in generativity um, can be not only a wonderful motive for people and a way to keep going, but a way to give back and keep them involved, but also really being creative about work design and uh, now we're seeing that a lot of employers are, are having trouble finding good help. And so there isn't necessarily a huge labor supply to fix the problem. And so let's work with the people that we have who have the knowledge and the motivation to do it. But um, but it's tricky and it's it's going to take some policy changes. It's going to take some organizational leaders who can really do this and do this well and be good examples for society in terms of how they've done it. We certainly have seen examples of companies over time that have really made the news for being great places to work and taking care of their workers. And, and so there are ways in which uh, there could be organizations that are just good stewards in, in this regard as well. And then it's just educating managers and supervisors about benefits of flexibility and other things that can be helpful and really encouraging and supporting those conversations between workers and their supervisors to identify what they need and what they want and hopefully going about it in a way where workers feel psychologically safe. In other words, they don't have a fear of repercussion or harm on account of sharing their concerns and talking openly about what what they need and what their employer uh, or supervisor can do for them and to support them. You know, we're focusing this conversation on our society here in the United States, and this must, might be a bit of a curveball question, but do you know what it's like in other cultures for the older worker? Do they see the same rates of this age discrimination that we're talking about, do you think, in other countries? That um, So to be very honest, I don't know exactly about the rates of age discrimination, but I do know from my colleagues, particularly people in Europe, but other, other parts of the world as well, that age discrimination does exist. It's not just a U.S. phenomenon. Where it differs a little bit has to do with what is considered, quote unquote, old, because in the U.S., the Age Discrimination and Employment Act uh, defines age discrimination on a legal basis based on age 40. But there are other countries where they have different ages for that. And another issue is that in other countries, there is uh, so some countries have mandatory retirement and others have better public policies that support workers when they retire or leave the workforce and at younger ages compared to the way the social security system and employer, uh, the, the program is in the U.S. where um, more employers have defined contribution plans like what we have at Colorado State and elsewhere, where many employees have to save for their own retirement in terms of having a pension provided for them. So uh, it's a very long-winded answer to your question. Um, but the, to really get back to brass tacks, I do think age discrimination exists, but it, it looks a little bit different 
because there are different policies and different norms, and even some countries where the normative age might vary, um, you know, just in terms of demographics uh, within the country and so forth. Right. Those are all good points that other societies have a lot different laws <laughs> that support, yes. support or maybe are against this topic. So uh, I want to shift the conversation in a second. But before I do, I just wanted to ask if you have like any current research or research you've done in the past that we haven't talked about that's kind of, that you want to loop in and maybe tied to this conversation. Sure. Thanks for asking that, Hannah. Um, one thing that I've been fortunate to work on that's been a lot of fun is some work with Sharon Parker and MK Ward in Australia, where we've combined what we know about work design and characteristics of jobs that are really favorable for people, and also taking into account cognitive functioning. Um, part of what led to us getting connected has to do with some of my research that looks at how our cognitive functioning may change over the life course. Um, and, and here we are about half an hour into the conversation. And, and I don't think I've mentioned the word cognition yet. Um, but we know that there are some abilities that remain stable across our life, our knowledge and our expertise. But then there are other ways in which our cognitive functioning declines over time, our memory, our speed of processing, and so forth. And um, so in the research that I've been doing with uh, doctors Parker and Ward, we've been looking at what are the ways in which we might ought to design work so that it will foster maintaining cognitive functioning or in the best case scenario, maybe even improving cognition over time. Um, and so when you have people in a, an environment where they're exposed to novel things and, and learning and getting feedback. And when they're engaged in work, that is what we call cognitively complex, where they have to think and process information, but in a way where it isn't too demanding or, or over the top, we know that that can be really beneficial for people's well-being. But what we want to do is more research where we can um, have some experiments, if you will, or some quasi-experiments to investigate how changes in job demands or uh, job characteristics might relate to cognition over time and what does that look like, um, especially because if people are to remain in the workforce, part of it is is just being mentally sharp and, and having the ability to, to do that. It reminds me of my conversation way back when with Deanna Davalos, who's also in your department. We talked about how the best way to maintain your cognitive function over your lifetime is to pick up a new skill and learn mm -hmm. something that's actually going to use different pathways in your brain. And how great would it be if we could get that from our work? So then when we get home from work, we're not having to worry about that. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's that's yeah. exactly right. And it would be wonderful if we could do that at work so that we aren't having to do crossword puzzles or Wordle or whatever we're doing to, to challenge our, our brain in that way. Right, right. So I wanted to ask you this question from a different vantage point because you do, you know, you are involved in occupational research, um, health and well-being, psychology research. You know, we talk at the center about the phenomenon of population aging, that we're verging on a time when we're going to have more older adults than we do younger people to take care of those older adults. And it's something from the workforce perspective that I know many different entities are concerned about is, is how are we going to have enough 
nurses and doctors and and all these different professions that that will help with this older generation. And so I wonder if you just have anything that you can comment on, you know, how can we prepare or motivate students to be interested in working or choosing a career in aging? What are some industries that are projected to be in demand? Sure. Um, So I think for a long time, there's been a sore need for people in geriatrics. There are a lot of medical specialties that are, are very attractive to our young doctors, but there's a need for people who are willing to care for older adults, particularly as, as you pointed out, with population aging and people living until later life, there's just a need for people for serving that need. And related to that, we need social workers, we need nurses, um, short, a lot of healthcare workers and healthcare professions. I believe that was the case previously, just based on the demographics of our society and the fact that we need more people to care for these people as they get older. But especially now, given the burnout that we've seen and the challenges in the healthcare system with COVID and so forth. Um, In terms of what can be done to motivate people to do that work, um, (laughs) I'm not really sure what to offer for advice Um, other than I, I think if we are able to connect with people. Um, I, sometimes stereotypes come about because we, we lack personal experiences and knowledge about certain situations. So if there are ways to just get to know people in the community, get to know older adults, maybe volunteer, you know, in some settings, um, can just be really helpful for, for trying to bridge that gap and maybe get people excited about, about working with an older population and, and different types of jobs and different ways to do. Uh, and then if we see going back to where we started the conversation with Encore Careers, I mean, maybe this is something that somebody doesn't plan to do for their entire life. Um, maybe there's something we can do to uh, encourage and recruit middle age or, or you know, people, yeah, I guess middle age people to to consider doing more of this kind of work rather than assuming it has to just be younger people that are currently going to school and so forth. Right. I like your the comment about the intergenerational piece because I think we miss that often. And I feel like several students that I've talked to who have gone into that gerontology focus did it because they really love their grandparents, for example, and they have that intergenerational interaction that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So This last question is the question that I ask everyone who comes on the show. It's always interesting to hear people from their different disciplines and how they respond. Um, But the question is, what makes you most excited for the future of aging research from your perspective in organizational psychology and, and aging? Sure. So two things. First of all, I think it's interesting to see just the complex, large number of factors that exist and how what we experience at work, at home, with our family, whether that's with our immediate family or maybe our grandparents, as you mentioned, uh, in our community, in our society, and then the economy on a broader level, how factors at all those different levels and all those different areas really come together to impact the aging process, our understanding of aging, as well as demography, health, uh, patterns of retirement, 
And, and it'll be interesting to see as these factors shift over time, what does that mean? Um, it's difficult to predict what uh, what retirement in the workforce is going to look like in another five or 10 years, simply because I don't think um, 25 months ago, any of us would have predicted what happened with regard to, to COVID and the pandemic. Um, back to your question, the other one is simply that we're all aging. This isn't just something that affects old people, but it's it's all of us and it's a, a lifelong process. And so by studying aging and this area of research, hopefully we can aim to improve health and well-being for all people. And hopefully in time with the knowledge that we gain from research and, and applying it in practical settings that we can help people live high quality lives and, and do our best to maintain our functioning for as long as we can. Mm, I think that's a great answer. Well, that's all I had prepared. Is there anything else that you want to add? Um, not, I'm just curious based on your sense of this conversation, as well as all the excellent podcasts that you've done. Um, is there anything that you're curious about or, or hoping to see change as, as we move forward? <laughs> um, I, I just have this perspective from a younger person and how my generation is feeling about work. And I think a lot of what you were saying is how I'm feeling and, and thinking through like, you know, the way we've been doing it since the early 20th century is not necessarily the way we should continue working, especially in this post-pandemic kind of mid-pandemic time that we're still in, where, for instance, I don't go into the office hardly at all anymore. I'm working mostly remotely from home. And there's a lot of office folks that are in that vein. And so it, it's just interesting to think about how it's all might shift and what are the possibilities? Cause I think my generation is really looking for that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, in terms of just the, the meaning, like the role of work, the meaning that work has a lot of people have been saying, you know, maybe we need to do away with this, um, you know, five day a week, two day weekend kind of thing. And there are places, you know, elsewhere in the world where, um, where they have di work is structured differently. And, and certainly people don't work the long hours that we work in the U.S. So so I agree with you. And, and it'll be really interesting to see just how the world of work shifts over time and with generations and what we've learned by the fact that we can work remotely and be productive, that, that we don't need FaceTime in the office for that to happen. And, yeah. and so forth. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the four day work week. <laughs> I think the two day weekend is just not enough time. It's like you you get Friday night and like Saturday morning and then you start to get that Sunday scary kind of feel like, oh, it's all coming to a close. I have to go back to the grind, that kind of feeling. Um, but I'm also interested in like you know, research behind our attention span, for example, and how an eight hour workday is not necessarily what's best for humans. <laughs> um, I don't know. If, have you heard of the book Laziness Does Not Exist by I Dr. Devin Price? I have not, but I, I'm going to write that down so I can check it out because I, I too think that, um, you know, that we just need to understand more about attention and attention span and what that looks like, especially um, for those of us that are in front of computers all the time and doing remote work. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. I read it last year. It kind of, it came out, I think about a year and a half ago, made its rounds at the perfect time during the pandemic when a lot of people were feeling these feelings. Um, but it's, it's, it's just a, it's a commentary, um, uh, just about, for example, three hours is the maximum amount of time for an attention span a lot of the time when it comes to working. And then you need a very restorative break <laughs> in order mm-hmm. for your brain to be firing on all cylinders again. Mm-hmm. And I just read it and I identified with so much of it. And, and a lot of it is conversations about burnout and how we're living in a burnout culture. And I think that deeply resonates as well. Absolutely. That I'm really glad you brought that up because that's that's really important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Gwen, thank you so much for these last 35 minutes. I really enjoyed this conversation and I'm just glad that you could come on the show and talk about it. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.